as you can see, there's going to be some fun verses we get to look at today. So uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Timothy as we uh, continue the series on Be the Church, uh, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to young Timothy as Paul has left uh, Timothy in this town of Ephesus to continue to instruct and lead the church there, lead the elders there, and and address some specific issues going on. And here, this letter from Paul to Timothy is about what to do in those particular situations. But we also see a lot of great principles that apply to us as well. So we're going through this uh, book of First Timothy now. It's really timely for us as a church family as we're looking to, you know, launch new campuses and become a, a multi-site congregation, what is it, what does it still for us mean to be the church? Um, and so we're kind of looking at all of this. It's been really instruct, instructing to us. And so that is good. And so today we're, we're just kind of systematically going through the book of First Timothy and we're landing today on probably one of the most controversial uh, passages, definitely in First Timothy, but one of the more controversial passages in the New Testament, especially when it comes to how do we understand this today and how do we apply this teaching uh, to our context here today in 2022 and you know what has changed, what hasn't changed, et cetera. So uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun today. And so we're gonna look at First Timothy chapter two, verses eight through 15. So If you could please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I need my glasses here. So I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faithful and love and holiness with self-control. There's a lot of fun ones in this one. Hey, let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And God, I just pray that as we tackle this tough passage this morning, that um, that God, we not be afraid of what your word says. Because God, we know you love us. And God, we know that you have the absolute best for us, men and women, And so, God, we're all your children saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we're all your family. We're your adopted kids. And so, God, we know that what you have for us is purely out of love and desire for your to be glorified and us to be built up to our maximum potential. So, God, I just pray that you would use this time to give us clarity and understanding. Um, And God, just, just speak to our hearts, no matter, like Ed prayed, no matter where we are in our relationship with you, that God, you would continue to grow us in those next steps that you have for each and every one of us. So God, we commend this time to you for your glory's sake, in Christ's name, amen. Thanks, go ahead and be seated. A lot of gender issues in our culture today, right? I mean, there's, uh, you know, you still got misogyny, which is overly masculine. You have, you know, extreme feminism. You've got gender identity confusion. There's a lot going on about gender uh, in our culture today, you know, and uh, to the point where, you know, can boys become girls, girls become boys, and, you know, it's all this sort of thing. And and, it, and really, there's this, there's this thought process that's kind of also 
in culture. It's in the church. And that's this conversation between what's called egalitarianism. Anybody heard of that word before? It's a big word, a few of you. Egalitarianism, which is the view that women and men are absolutely equal, not only in value, but that whatever women can do, men can do. And whatever men can do, women can do. To the point even today that, you know, talking about men being able to carry a child, I just, you know, blows my mind, right? But that's egalitarianism to the extreme. Then you have another view that historically that we as Baptists have held and still hold to, and that's complementarianism in the word, in the sense of completion, that men and women complete one another. We complete humanity, right? Like in Genesis chapter two, when um, verse 18 says, it's not good for man to be alone, so I will create a a helper or a complement. Complement's a very good translation there. One who completes humanity. So how does all this work? And then look, look at this passage. And here in this passage, Paul sees men as a very specific gender with a different role and women as a very specific gender with a different role. So let's just go back and look at what Paul says. We're going to look at these tough passages one at a time. And so I'll try to do this in the time allotted. And so we'll uh, go through this and hopefully we'll have clarity and um, direction. So let's start with a big thought. The big thought is this. In order to be the church, we must hold to the biblical worldview of the equality of men and women with complementarian roles. This is what we understand the biblical worldview to be. So in this passage, we 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 see Paul gives some very clear direction to the men, and he gives some very clear direction to the women. So let's let's look at these. First, the commands to the men. Here in verse 8, it says, desire that in every place. So here, Paul is not just, you know, secluding this to Ephesus. This is in every place. In every place, I desire, and the word desire is not a wish, it is I determine. This is what I've determined, that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands. So the first here is this command of men to pray in public, to pray together. So obviously he's addressing this because this was not happening among the men in the church at Ephesus like it should, right? The, it doesn't mean that Paul doesn't want women to pray also, but most likely the women already were praying. It was the men who were not. And so this command here is, to, is for men to pray corporately, come together to pray. We talked about prayer a lot last week. Um, you know, Paul's heart in prayer, the necessity of prayer. He starts off chapter two saying, First of all then, in other words, of first importance is the importance of the church to gather, to pray. We talked about the prayer meeting and all that sort of thing that we do here at Canaan, but that's of first importance. And so here Paul's command to the man is to do this. And then he kind of goes into the how, lifting holy hands. That's an interesting phrase. This is talking about the posture of prayer, that when we pray, we have to lift up our hands. Or is this talking about something a little deeper than that? The lifting of hands is referring to prayers from a heart of love and integrity and devotion to God, not in pretense, not in a hypocritical nature, but to pray with holy hands. So many times in scripture, God actually rebukes those who pray just for praying's sake and for the wrong reasons. Let's look at a few of these passages. This is kind of sobering. Psalm 80, verse four. Or Lord of hosts, or God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Now, this is not a thought that commonly comes into our mind, right? 
Can God be angry at us for how we pray? That's interesting. Some other thoughts here. Out of Proverbs 28, verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is what? An abomination. So what is, what is this talking about? Let's just get a little further view. Isaiah 115, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Again, it was a posture. We spread your hands, lifting hands in prayer. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Because your hands are full of blood, violence, malice, evil intentions. Lamentations 344. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. Wow. Nehemiah 8.6. Another one where we see things begin to change. So this lifting holy hands, this evokes from the Old Testament an image that not only that we pray matters, but it's that we pray out of our relationship, out of love and devotion to the Lord, that we are, we are really living, we're pursuing him, we are obeying him, we are letting him change us, and we are you know, walking in fellowship with Jesus, right? And this is why Jesus died, was to make this a reality for us. Because we cannot get into this relationship with God through Jesus on our own. Only by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and us having faith in him are we able to approach the throne of grace. So Hebrews 4 is a great verse. It says, therefore, because since we have such a great high priest, talking about Jesus, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with what? Let me know this verse. With what? Boldness, right? To obtain grace and mercy in our moment of need. It's a great promise, a great truth. We're only able to do that through Jesus. But this whole, this whole point, what Paul is getting at, lifting hands and lifting holy hands, meaning what's the state of your hands? What's the state of your heart? What's the state of your life? So obviously the men that were in Ephesus, as we talked about in chapter one, those of you that are here for that, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of discussion, a lot of argument over theology. There were elders and leaders and pastors that were teaching false doctrine and not true. So there was arguments about that. So it stirred up a lot of anger within the church. And so when these men came to pray, they saw a lot of anger in their heart. They were quarreling with each other. So they were praying. They might've been saying some nice things, but it was just kind of in pretense. They weren't letting God examine them. They weren't dealing with God and coming to God repentantly and trying to make reconciliation with one another. So repeatedly in the Old Testament, the image of godly men, there's this image of godly men imploring God with outstretched arms. Nehemiah and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In humility and repentance. Psalm 28, 2. It says this, it says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. That's out of a, a, a desperation for God, out of an earnestness of heart. Psalm 63, 4. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will, what? Lift up my hands. Luke chapter 24, even Jesus says, led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. So this whole piece in here about the holy hands is not just a command for us to pray, but to monitor how we are walking with Jesus. 
You know, in James, we see the command about the, about the, when you're sick, to call the elders and let them anoint you and pray for you for the prayers of a what? Righteous person. That's someone who's walking with Jesus. A prayer of a righteous person, a righteous man avails much or is highly effective. There's that righteous aspect. So a lot of times we go out and we just live and do whatever we want to do, right? We don't have a regard for the Lord. You know, you can, you know, people post on Facebook, hey, I was in church, a great service today. Then that next weekend, they're, they're showing themselves, you know, hey, here I am drunk with my friends and living it up. Hey, something's not equating there, right? There's a, there's a disconnect. And so what, what Paul was saying to these guys, if there's a disconnect with you, how can you come before the Lord really seeking his heart when your heart is so jacked up with your anger and your malice and your fighting and your quarreling? Don't be like that. Repent. Let there be let there be transformation. Let there be forgiveness. Let there be reconciliation. Make this all about God, not about you, you, your, your own personal wants and preferences, right? Because, you know, us guys, talking to the men here, right? This is what this command to. How many of us as men, we love it when our wives have to say, okay, you're right. Come on. Oh, that's just great stuff, isn't it? Yeah. How many of us as men love to tell our wives, okay, you're right? No, right? We as guys, we love to be right. Amen? Come on, amen? Come on, come on. We love to be right. You know, it makes us, it feeds that male ego weird thing that we've got, right? We just love to be right. And we really love it when our ladies tell us that we're right. Although it doesn't really happen often because, uh, you know, but anyway. I'm not going down that rabbit trail, um, but, it, but I, I digress. So we love that. So we have to fight against that, guys. There is more important things than just me being right. Ultimately, God is always right. And so for me to be right is for me to be right with God because God is the one who's right, not me. There's gonna be things that happen. There, there, there are things that, are, that do happen, even in a church family when we have a different opinion about something. Like tonight, we're starting this, Fun conversation on eschatology, the study of end times, right? And, and Martin and I are going to be kind of having conversation. Martin and I don't agree on end times. It's going to be make it even more fun. We're great friends. We love Jesus, and it's going to be a fun conversation, not a not an awkward one. It's not going to be hostile at all. But it's just a fun conversation. But still, you know, it deepens us. That's still desire. We want to be right. But this is about. God's truth. God is always right. So we must realign ourselves to God's truth, that appeal. And so we're to pray here without anger, without anger. Paul knows here that if, if men's attitudes are conducive to acceptable prayer, then Timothy's pastoral leadership has hope of succeeding. But if prayer goes awry, the approach to God in worship is imperiled. If we come together to pray, which is so critical, we must do so in unity, in harmony. That's where God just pours out his spirit and does incredible things. If we come together and there's animosity, which is what was happening here in in Paul's time in Ephesus, it can go awry. And so Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, it is so important that the men, the leaders in your church are unified. I praise God, we have a very unified leadership here at Canaan. Not just, not just staff, but there's great unity here at Canaan. So I'm so thankful what God's doing here. 
So amen to that. But we've got to keep that. We've got to protect that. We have to fight to protect that. That is so critical. Without anger. And then without quarreling. Because anger and quarreling acknowledges the, the rancor and the sin that seeks to disrupt our worship. Signals unholy passion and division instead of the harmony with God and others that the gospel of reconciliation enables us to do and calls for us to do. So, just one last thought on this, James 1.20. The half-brother of Jesus writes this, is for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's just a good truth, right? Not only true in the church, it's true in the home, it's true at work. Guys, women too, when we respond in anger, it never, say never, never produces the righteousness of God. Never. Parenting, when we respond to our children in anger, which all of us have done, right? It's a sin because it never produces the righteousness of God. Anger. Anger is an emotion. And whenever we have that kind of emotion, we need to look at, okay, why, why, is, why is that emotion getting stirred up in me? It'd be like the dashboard warning lights on your vehicle. When the check engine light comes on, what is that telling you? Something's wrong. You know, got to get it checked out. We have anger stirred in our hearts. It's like our dashboard saying, hey, something's not right. What do you need to deal with? Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. So, some commands to men. So he goes on, says, therefore, so put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So there, he is equating anger, right, with filthiness, rampant wickedness. Instead, receive with meekness. That's that strong but gentle, gentleness about us, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. It's a great truth, great truth. Let's go to the commands of women. There are several here. So just some context. So Ephesians, the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a, a city in modern-day Turkey. Um, it was a, a large city, and every Greek town, which by this time had become a Roman town, part of the Roman um, empire, but it was still like Greek culture. And so every, every city had a patron deity. If you ever studied Greek mythology, you know, they had all kinds of different gods and goddesses, little Gs that were fake, not real, but like Zeus and Apollos, you know, you've heard of these, right? Well, the, the goddess of Ephesus was this female goddess, deity named Artemis, also called Diana. And here's one statue of her that actually was found in ancient Ephesus. And, um, you know, she's, she was a strong female type figure. She was not devoted to a, a male God at all. She was a standalone female, you know, strong. And so the women in Ephesus tried to follow her example. They were trying, they, they led a lot of different things. Women were, had a lot of power in Ephesus and it was just kind of a thing that happened. They made this temple for her. Here's the ruins of the temple of Artemis, not much left, a couple of columns. But here's kind of what it would have looked like based on an artistic rendering. Um, kind of looks like the Parthenon, very similar. Um, but that's the a, a rendering of the temple of Artemis in ancient Ephesus. And so 
women had a lot of, there was a lot of things that women tried to do in Ephesus that was maybe a little bit different than the rest of the world. How they dressed really mattered. Artemis was powerful and she was wealthy. So if you were to be like Artemis, you dressed powerfully in in wealthy ways. What you wore mattered. How you did your hair mattered. The kind of jewelry you wore mattered, not just for fashion sense, right? But for your own self-worth, right? For your standing in the social stratus of the city of Ephesus. So there's, there's a lot of cultural issues going on that Paul is addressing. Some of it's localized, some of it is universal. So let's, let's look at this. So his first is talks about what is to be and what not is to be adorned. So he has this teaching on women. Likewise, starts with that verse nine, likewise, meaning I desire then, or it is determined for men, likewise, I determine for women, right? That they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. So what is, what is he talking about here? So, What's to be adorned? Be adorned. So just as Paul also wants women to pray and lift holy hands, he also, and he only addresses the men with this due to the fact that they were the ones struggling. Also, Paul is not okay with men dressing immodestly as well. But here specifically to the ladies, um, he talks about this, respectability. He talks about modesty, Respectability and modesty kind of go here together. The kinds of women, um, kinds of women dressed like Paul's describing were those who were seeking their identity in Artemis. They were, their whole identity was in how they looked. Their whole identity, their value, their, how they saw themselves was in how can I braid my hair? What kind of expensive jewelry can I wear? How provocatively can I dress? Instead of finding their value in Christ in the Lord, and who they are. So they were those trying to be like Artemis, and therefore, they were not practicing self-control. But all of this was to point, as Paul says here, right, with modesty and self-control, not braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So it's all to culminate in the good works. So, So for the women... Is this saying Paul is anti-style? No. Is this saying that God is anti-jewelry? No. Is this saying that God is anti-braided hair? Right? No. This is saying what God wants for you is to find your value, to find who you are in Christ, not in the scenes of the culture, not in simply what you wear, but find your value in the Lord. So that's what is to be adorned. And then he says what's not to be adorned, right? What's not to be adorned? First is vanity. You know, if you can be overly worried about what you look like, that's vanity. That is, that's a, that can be a, a, a sinful, destructive path that, again, guys can go down this road too, right? But it seemed to be a specific issue that the women in Ephesus were dealing with. Vanity and, and then idolatry. They were more worried about looking like Artemis than they were looking like Jesus. That's a problem. And that all resulted in this competitive division where you would have certain ladies come in and they just look immaculate, right? They perfect hair, you know, the clothes that no one else can afford, you know, the designer clothes, right? And they would come in and they would create this division and this jealousy among the women and there would be this sense of competing. 
that would be divisive for worship, just like the men quarreling over doctrine. Now you have the women competing over who has the nicest clothes, who has the nicest hair, etc. And that's totally not the point. The point is very different. All of these refer to the which would divide the church, bring disharmony in the church, and get people's focus off of Christ and the gospel. So with Artemis as this dominant female figure, that's how that affected the wearing of the clothes and the hair that Paul was getting at. So how do we put that in context today? Well, ladies, God loves you. Not based on what you look like, right? Not based on if your hair's braided or not. Not based on how many diamonds and pearls you have. That's all okay. God just wants your heart, amen? He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants your devotion. And when you're walking with Jesus, these good works that Paul talks about, they're gonna manifest. You're gonna be a forgiving person. You're gonna grow to be a kind person. You're gonna be a minister of reconciliation. You're gonna find your work in somewhere connected to the gospel. That is what Paul is getting at. It's what God's getting at here in this text. So that's how we apply it. Yes, dress modestly. You know, we're not here to to flaunt our stuff, right? That's not why we're at church. That's We're here to honor Jesus. Guys, same, same treat's true for us. We're here to honor Jesus. So how we dress does that. You know, how we dress is to be modest for good works. How to learn. Second thing, how to learn. Here's where we get to some really interesting stuff, right? So Paul says here, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, it's hard for us in our context not to immediately jump to this thought that women should just not open their mouth. That's totally not what Paul is saying, right? So what, what is he saying and what is um, the teaching here? We see this, this word for quietly, learn quietly. It's using other scriptures. We see in Acts chapter 22, verse two. So when they heard that Paul was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Second hmm. Thessalonians chapter three, verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to, learn, to earn their own living. So the idea here is not silence of speech, right? The idea here is quietness of atmosphere without disruption, without commotion, learn in a calm environment. So here in the context, learn in an atmosphere that's void of the angry and quarreling men. Learn in an atmosphere that's void of women divided over looks and competitive um, dress code. Be in a quiet, calm environment. Remember, this is the command from Paul to Timothy. Let a woman learn in a quiet environment. So it's Paul's instruction to Timothy to try to facilitate an environment that's void of all this quarreling among men, competition among women. So everyone, including the women, can learn about the word of God in in quietness, with submissiveness. This refers to learning the word with the spirit of submissiveness to what's being taught. So earlier, you know, there's some tough passages in scripture. And anytime that in our context, we come across a scripture that makes us uncomfortable, we should ask the question, why does this make me feel uncomfortable? 
Is this talking about something that maybe I've become comfortable with? It's really a sinful attitude or behavior. Then we should repent and realign ourselves with God. There's usually a reason we're uncomfortable reading certain scripture, but we shouldn't be, right? Like how many of you have ever read a passage where it talks about predestination election and it makes you a little uncomfortable? Like, I just really don't get this. Come on, be honest. Good grief, right? Absolutely. Because that's, that's kind of, for a lot of us who grew up in church, that was foreign to how we were taught. But it's just all over scripture, right? So it makes it, we have to wrestle with that. But we shouldn't be afraid of God's word. God loves us. And so when he's talking about this, this is the attitude we have. This is an attitude of submissiveness. When God says something very clearly in his word, right, I should submit to that. Men and women alike, we should submit to the word of God with an eagerness to obey Jesus. And then we get to number three here, a little about roles. A little bit here about roles. He goes on and says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Let's, let's deal with this. What is the bottom line? The bottom line here up front is only men are to be pastors. Now, how do we get there? How do we unpack that, right? Because first, those who teach and have authority are the elders, pastors of the church. And as we'll see next week and elsewhere, that is to be men, right? Now, maybe some pushback. Why can't women be pastors? Why not? What's the reason there? Was this merely a cultural thing? Was this just Paul talking to the Ephesian church because of all this stuff with Artemis slash Diana? Is that just a localized thing that's not to be applied everywhere else? Or on the other extreme, is this, this is, should women even be able to teach in a small group setting? Those who have all these questions come out of this, this one verse, right, that can be hard for churches to navigate. In our Southern Baptist Convention, this is an issue right now because there is one of the largest Southern Baptist churches. Uh, it's in California. They recently ordained three ladies as pastors. And so it stirred up this whole thing, right? And it's all about this and some other passages. How do we understand the word of God? It's very clear in the Baptist faith and message, right, that the office of pastor is reserved just for men. And that's based on this text and some others. So what is the deal, right? Because as followers of Jesus, Jesus loves men and women equally. You know, Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus, right? That's equality. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's, it's equality. God loves us all the same. And I firmly believe that men can do anything women can do and women can do anything men can do except what the Bible says they can't do, right? So it's, it's just, for, first and foremost, this is a biblical issue, not just a gender issue. So, Let's unpack this. So it's number two, although Ephesian cultures had many women who were dominant, Paul's reasoning here is not cultural. It's based on creation. So he gives us the reason to why. Why teaching and authority, so that's the role of elder pastor, right? So I, don't, I don't see this as being, they can't teach nor have authority. It's kind of a Elders teach and have authority, so women can't teach or have that authority either. So it's just reserved for elders. But the reason Paul gives here, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he goes back to creation, which is transcultural. 
right? The, what happened in creation is the same for us, is the same for cultures in Africa today, same for cultures in Europe, Australia, Eastern Asia. I mean, it's the same. The story of creation is the story of creation, period. Doesn't change. So that's what Paul goes back to. And so here in this, we see this, this kind of design by God. And it's, his design is based on the Trinity. So this is God's Trinitarian imprint on different spheres of life that we, that we have. You know, we have the family. We have the church. Well, if you look at the divine imprint of God, the triune God, he's perfect in unity, perfect in relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, right? Amen? One God in perfect unity and harmony, yet a little bit different roles. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons in perfect unity and harmony. So you have the Father. But we see that within the perfect triune God, you know, we see that the Son was submitted to the Father, right? I mean, Jesus is praying the night before he's crucified. Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, and the cup represented his suffering. Yet, what did he say? But not my will, yours be done. In that moment, we see God the Son in his complete and total sinlessness. We see him submit to the Father. We see the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus very clearly in, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, and he will point all men to me. So we see the roles very specific here. So one God, three persons, with slightly different roles. We see that imprint in so many spheres of our life because God creates out of himself, right? And so we see that like in the family, in the family, we see husband, wife, and children, right? It's a pattern like after the church. The church see Christ as the head, pastors, people, pastors slash elders, people. We see that as well. And so this family, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Just like the church submits to Christ. You see this divine imprint of God. We see it in the church as well. Children are to obey both parents so there's that submission. And to understand submission, we go back to the, again to the Trinity. The submission and authority is not, it's not abusive. It's not domineering. It's in the context of love, unity, harmony, and that which glorifies and honors God, right? There is very much abusive authority. There is ungodly submission, all of that is, is a twist and a perversion of God's divine imprint on all of life. So the family, the church, is to look like the Trinity. So we see that divine imprint through all things. And Paul talks about that so much in Ephesians 5 and 6. We see it everywhere. So here, Paul goes back to creation, to Genesis. We see in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, because God said, let us make man in our image. Man, there's the word Adam, right? He, Adam. But Adam literally means just mankind, right? So let us make mankind in our image. And so in the image of God, God created him. Male and female, he created them. And what did God say after he created everything? He says, behold, it is what? Good, very good, right? We get to Genesis chapter two. 
And the beginning of Genesis chapter two kind of goes back and retells of creation story, giving some more details, kind of fleshing some things out a little bit. We get to chapter two and, and so far in the, in the historical account, God has only created man, Adam. He hasn't created Eve yet. So he's created Adam. He's given Adam kind of the tour of the garden and showing him around and looking at everything. Verse 16, the tree of life, it's awesome. We get to verse 17 and there's this one law, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So there's the one law given to man. There's no woman yet. Verse 18 comes. It says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm gonna create a compliment for him. So we go through Adam naming the animals. He's, re- he's recognizing there's not another one like him. So verse 22 God puts Adam kind of in a deep sleep, takes the rib and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her into, brought her to the man. So now we have the fullness of mankind. God had given the law to Adam before Eve was even created. We get to chapter three. We meet the serpent. Satan, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, whenever I read this, I imagine this, really wicked, nasally voice, right? Like, you know, did God, really, you know, I, this is what I imagine. Anyway, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so the woman, remember, she was not there when God gave the law, right? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was the delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So, very intentional. God gave the law to man. The serpent came to the woman, the deceiver. Already he's trying to throw off God's Trinitarian imprint. But who does God come to for the answer? Lord God called to who? The man and said, where are you? Of course, God knew exactly where Adam was. So we see the beginning of the fall. The fall happened right there. And so Paul goes back to that event at the attempt of Satan to throw everything out of whack. And so that was his reasoning for this, that in the divine imprint of God to be Trinitarian, husband, wife, children, Christ, elder pastors, the church. And at the elder pastor is reserved for the men. And then we have this really weird verse. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Does that mean that, ladies, you're only saved by Jesus if you give birth to a child? No, it can't mean that, right? There's no other scripture talks about that. That's, no, that's ridiculous. So what is he talking about here then, right? What is the deal what is this? Only the woman will be give birth to the Savior is what it's talking about. This she is singular, refers to Eve, right? So here, she will be saved through childbearing. What? What does that come from? Well, notice right after Adam and Eve sin at the fall, there's the consequences. And we get to chapter three, verse 15, when God is given the consequence to Satan, the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, between your offspring and her offspring, He, this is called the first gospel. You know, in in theology terms, it's proto-evangelium. The first gospel is, is the prophecy that the son 
of Eve will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. It's exactly what Jesus does at the cross. But he will bruise his heel. And we see that again at the cross. This is the first gospel. So she is saved through the childbearing. Eve was the prophecy. In fact, if you read on in Genesis 4, uh, the first child that Eve gives birth to is Cain, and, and there's a, a hope there that he's going to be the one. So Eve thought it was going to be immediate. Here we are, you know, <laughs> 6,000 years later at least, but Jesus has done it. But Eve had that expectation of that first gospel being fulfilled. And so, so she will be saved through child marriage. She will give birth to the Messiah if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control meaning the gospel will continue to go forward through the church as long as we are faithful, loving, holy, and have self-control. In other words, if men and women heed the teaching of Paul in this passage, the gospel continues to go forward. This is important, right? It's important how we live. It's important what we think. It's important how we conduct ourselves. It's important that when we gather to pray, first, it's important that we gather and pray, but it's also important how we gather and pray. Not in pretense, not, you know, oh God, even though I'm living it up throughout the week, not paying any attention to you, I'm gonna come and do a duty. No, it's not like that at all. We pray out of a love a devotion to God, a desire to see God use us, move through us for this work of the gospel. And we're to be unified in that. So just some last comments, some last takeaways, encourage you to consider. Specific to this text is to the men. Is there any anger, any quarreling that's going on in your life right now? That can disrupt your closeness to the Lord? Is there any issues, men, in your homes? Because in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter even tells us that if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way and honoring her, your prayers will be hindered. So men, are you living in a close relationship with Jesus? Of the gospel going forward in us and through us, that matters. Women, to the ladies, are you focusing on Jesus and who Jesus says you are? Are you deriving your sense of value and love and respect and you know where you are in social things? Are you are you deriving all of that from who Jesus is and who you are in Christ? Or are you overly driven by external appearances? Do you find yourself struggling with jealousy of other women? Bring that to the cross because that too can hinder the gospel going forward. And here at Canaan, we understand that there is nothing more important than for us to be a part of God's kingdom going forward. Amen? There's nothing more important than that. So this is kind of one of those texts. It's like, hey, let's make sure that I'm not the one getting in the way. Let's make sure that I'm doing my part. Let's make sure that I am walking tightly with Jesus. That's kind of the question of this day. Are you walking tightly with Jesus? Are you a born again follower of Christ? If not, 
We're about to have a prayer and response time. Our counselors would love to talk and pray with you and walk you through how to begin that relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you are a believer, but maybe you've got some jealousy things or maybe you've got some other things going on and you want to pray and have someone pray with you for you to have victory over that. Our counselors would love to pray with you about that. Guys, you're having quarreling, anger, you have anger issues, or you're having troubles at home. Our counselors would love to pray with you about that. Everything is completely confidential. No judging here. Because every single one of us have been there, will are there, or will be there. Right? So we're all sinners. That's that's the it's the bad news of the Bible, but it's also kind of good news that you're kind of here today and you're jacked up and you got some tough things going on. Every one of us do too. Right? We're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. So this isn't about a show. This isn't about a judging thing where, oh, I can't believe so-and-so went forward. Really think is, why didn't, why didn't he go forward, <laughs> right? Because we all need to. We need to pray. We need prayer. And like we talked about last week, we really long and yearn for Canaan to grow, becoming more and more and more of a praying church. Because a church that is fueled by the gospel, it's not praying, it's going to be a powerless church. We've got to have prayer and the gospel focus. So I'm asking us to stand. We're going to a time of response. Ask our prayer counselors if you'll go ahead and make your way on down. We'll just open this up and start this time of prayer response together. Father, we thank you for your truth. God, thank you for just how clear your gospel is. God, I thank you that how clear you make it in scripture about how men and women, you love us the same. We're your sons and daughters. It's also clear, God, there's different roles there. God, as we come to this moment of response, we talked about some some heavy things and God, maybe you've stirred some thoughts and convictions, challenges up in our hearts. God, in these next few minutes, we just want to take some time to respond. Lord, there may be some here that's, they're not in a relationship with you yet. They've been kind of checking out Christianity and checking out what this church thing's all about. And God, you've revealed to them today or this week that they need to trust in you and you alone for their salvation. They need to surrender their life to you and understand that you are Lord. You're a king. You're over everything, including our lives. God, if there's anyone here who needs to continue to talk to that, pray about that, God, I pray you would help them come and pray with their counselors up here at the front. God, there may be some here who are struggling, struggling with anger, struggling with jealousy, struggling with a a sense of unhealthy competition. God, I pray that you would um, urge them, move them to come and seek ministry and prayer. God, we can't fight this or beat these things alone, only through your spirit and through the encouragement of one another. We overcome these things. Lord, you tell us in James so clearly to confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. God, this is a holy, healthy move. God, I pray for those who are making decisions, whether it's to join the church or to get baptized or um, God, they're seeking what their next step is. God, help us to come out and get prayer for that. 
Because Lord, you want us all to know our next step so clearly. So Lord, we just want to give this time to you. We want to make it to glorify you. It's not about us. It's all about you, your power, your majesty, and what you desire for us. So Lord, use this time for your purpose and glory in Christ's name.